Well, welcome everybody to the launch lecture of the UNCTAD Trade and Development Report 2013. My name is Oriana Bandiera. I'm a professor of the Department of Economics here at the LSE and the director of the Santori Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines. Uh, it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce you to Richard Kajul Wright, who is a senior UN economist who's heading the unit of economic integration and cooperation among developing countries at the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development. Uh, he has a very outstanding publication record on pretty much every level that you can imagine. I've seen flagship annual reports published by him, such as the one that he will be talking about tonight, and as well as many academic papers, edited volumes, and newspapers articles. Following his presentation, Robert Wade will comment. And Robert is a professor of political economy and development in the Department of International Development here at the LSE. Before joining the LSE, Robert has been in many top departments around the world, such as Princeton, MIT, and also the World Bank. Uh, Robert's research studies how to improve the development prospects of developing countries, especially in the international system of rules and organizations, which bear upon their development prospects in his own words. So it's the ideal discussion for tonight's report. Um, very briefly, what do I need to tell you? Uh, Dr. Kojul Bright will talk for about 30 minutes, then Robert will reply for about 15, and then we'll have a 40, 45 minutes question and answer sessions. And we will conclude at 8 o'clock sharp. If you want to tweet, you have the recommended hashtag is LSCUNCTAD. You should be somewhere. But please keep your phones on silent. For us. Because we are being recorded, they can keep it on silent. It's different instructions. Um, and the reason for that is that it's actually hoped that a podcast of the event will be made available, subject to technical success. So this is being recorded, and hopefully the podcast will be available online. And uh, I think we have everything here. So... Please, Richard, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much. Good evening. Um, uh, I will, as, as was said, I'm going to speak for uh, around half an hour on the current and about to be launched Trade and Development Report 2013. Uh, this is the 32nd Trade and Development Report by UNCTAD. Um, UNCTAD as an organization will be 50 years old next year. So we're kind of entering a period of, of midlife or late midlife crisis. I'm not going to talk about the history of UNCTAD here. And if, I'm happy to answer any questions that people might have about, about the organization. What I want to try and do is to, is to quickly go through the, the basic story that is outlined in, in this year's report. Um, uh, given the time limits, I will, I will go through some of the slides fairly quickly. Um, but, but hopefully, um, at the, uh, we, we have a sufficient time at the end of the at the end of the session to uh, to address any questions. Sorry, what's going on? Um, just start, I guess, so we know uh, where we are with the basic highlights of this year's report. Um, next next week, as I guess most people know here, will be the fifth anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Um, a collapse that promised um, 
changes in the workings of the international economy. Uh, people will remember meetings in, um, in, in London, chaired by the then British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, where, where big changes were promised. Um, this report essentially argues that despite those promises, we're very much back into a business-as-usual world with many of the same systemic problems that led to the crisis in the first place. Um, those include widening inequality, uh, growing global imbalances, uh, banks that are still too big to fail uh, with, with the usual mix of toxic uh, financial practices that have gone along with unregulated financial markets and a erratic process of, of economic growth that continues to depend more on bubbles than it does upon uh, strengthening the, the productive economy. Um, one of the important um, arguments that was floated after 2008 and particularly by the G20 in 2009 and 2010 was the idea that um, the emerging economies were now in a position to take up more of the responsibilities for managing the global economy than was the case 10 or 20 years ago, that somehow these economies had decoupled their growth strategies from those of the advanced countries and were now in a position to independently act as engines of growth, not only for their own populations, but for the, for the wider uh, global economy. We're going to argue, and we argue in this report, that that story of decoupling has been seriously oversold and that developing countries continue to, to depend too heavily on external markets and external financial flows for their, for their growth performance, and that um, this report argues very strongly that there needs to be a change in the kind of development strategies that many emerging economies and, uh, have, um, have uh, undertaken in the last few years with a greater emphasis on domestic resource mobilization, domestic markets, but also with a focus on growing South-South ties. The reference here is to a great LSE uh, alumni, Arthur Lewis, who people forget sometimes was one of the few economists from the developing world to have won the Nobel Prize, possibly the only economist from the developing world to win the Nobel Prize, Arthur Lewis. And his Nobel Prize lecture back in 1979 was a lecture on the on the possibilities of increased South-South trade and investment as engines of growth for the developing world. And it's a theme that, that interests us in, in, in UNCTAD, and I'll come back to that uh, in, my, in my presentation. Finally, uh, the kind of last big point in this report is that um, any attempt to rebalance the world economy and any attempt for develop by developing countries to embark on uh, new types of more sustainable uh, growth continue to depend on taming finance, international finance. Um, inter despite all the talk, the, the, the predominance of uh, finan the financial sector, in our opinion, continues to distort the workings of the global economy and the prospects of many developing countries within that economy. And that's a major challenge that, that continues to haunt the international community and, and, is a, and continues to pose problems for policymakers in the, in the developing world. So that's, that's the kind of, that's, those are the basic messages of the report. On a slightly more facetious note, um, the, 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 
left-hand column here is, is what the G20 promised back in 2009, uh, a fairly ambitious program about not going back to business as usual for making fundamental changes in the world economy. The quote on the right-hand side is from the American satirical magazine, The Onion, which is, I guess, the kind of American equivalent of Private Eye, uh, which had a very witty uh, headline, actually before the Lehman crisis in, I think, July of 2008, Recession-Plagued Nation Demands New Bubble to Invest in. And basically, in a, in a nutshell, this report suggests that the satirical economists of The Onion were probably closer to predicting the future course of the world economy than the serious economists of the G20. Um, the, the first part of the report uh, that I, I, I hope you've all received a copy of um, just get, runs through the, the, the current state of the, of the global economy. There's nothing particularly earth-shattering sh- earth about what UNCTAD has to say on the, on the broad global trends um, in, in, over the course of the last uh, year, year or two. Um, the, the world economy continue, continues essentially to be in a technical recession. The IMF defines a global recession as anything under 3%. Uh, 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 economic growth and the world economy is growing at, grew at something like 2.2% last year and will probably grow at around 2.1% possibly less uh, uh, this year. The main cause for the weakness are the, is, the, is the continued poor performance of the advanced economies, um, particularly the Eurozone which will continue to co- contract uh, this year but um, it's also the case that over the course of the last couple of years the the emerging economies have also uh, uh, posted much weaker growth rates than, than was the case before the recession uh, and, and was the case uh, and, and much lower growth rates than, than was true of 2010 uh, when, when these economies rebounded. So there's been a gradual slowing of the, of the world economy dominated by the, the, the poor performance of the advanced countries but in recent years and, and particularly worrying for an institution like UNCTAD by a slowdown in growth in the, in the big emerging economies. Um, I mean, part of the problem, part of the, what we understand to be the weakness of the global economy in that period is the, is the un, unhelpful dependence of the advanced countries on what amounts to a certain, to some extent, an unorthodox monetary policy as the way to escape from from the crisis that hit in 2008. Um, uh, that that monetary policy has certainly uh, saved the banking system in most of the advanced countries, um, and it prevented a recurrence of the kind of great recession that that plagued the the 1930s, but it certainly hasn't been able to raise growth rates back to the levels that were were achieved uh, over the previous decade um, and and earlier. And UNCTAD, like a number of other institutions, essentially argues very strongly that without effective fiscal policy, getting developed countries will struggle to uh, achieve uh, rapid and sustainable growth rates that uh, they need to achieve to address problems like the ongoing jobs crisis, which continues to be a major weakness in the advanced countries. Job creation remains a huge problem in, in all the uh, developed uh, economies, and monetary policy alone, on our assessment, will not be sufficient to uh, fill the jobs gap, which is 
estimated in the order of something like 40 million jobs in 2013 um, uh, by itself. And so UNCTAD has consistently argued and argues again in this report that, that uh, uh, counter-cyclical fiscal policies uh, need to be part of any effective uh, uh, policy strategy in the, in the advanced countries. Um, uh, just, uh, again, underscoring the point that, that uh, with unemployment figures rather than with uh, employment figures that the jobs crisis should be up front and center in the policy thinking of, of, the, uh, uh, of the advanced countries. And sadly, it has not been so um, over the course of the last uh, two or three years. Um, a, a second feature, again, that we, 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 we go back to and is a particularly worrying one for us, given that a lot of the research on the crisis has shown that one of the systemic causes of the, crisis, of the financial crisis in 2008 was the huge increases in inequality uh, in the developed countries uh, from the mid-1980s um, onwards. And there was a lot of expectation that, again, this would be an issue that was to be addressed by G20 members. Indeed, that is suggested in the, in the points that I, I put up on the, on the earlier slide, that they would be looking for more inclusive uh, growth strategies in the, in the parlance of our times. Um, but in fact, if you look at these, for these, this is a figure of the share of labor income in world output over the course of the last 30 years. And that, that share of labor income, wages in, in output, has continued to decline uh, post-crisis in many uh, advanced countries and indeed in some, in some emerging economies. Um, the, the figure on the left-hand side is a, is a global figure that we've calculated. The, the, the figure on the right-hand side is for a series of, um, of individual countries, mainly advanced economies. But the broad trend of growing inequality um, and high levels of, of inequality has persisted in the, in the post-crisis period, and we take that to be a sign that business as usual uh, is now back on the, on the policy agenda in, in, in many countries. Um, if you look at the figures for income, household inequality, they're a bit more varied. You do see variation across both developed and developing countries. Um, uh, certain parts of the developing world, for example, in, in the course of the last decade and post-crisis, particularly in Latin America, for example, have actually been more successful in, in reversing trends in inequality, albeit in, in the case of Latin America from very, very high levels. So there have been some, some successful stories uh, of, of addressing inequality problems, but, but those are particularly rare in the, in the, advanced, in the advanced world. Um, this is just a, 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 a neater breakdown of, of growth performance over the course of the of the last uh, 10 years. Um, and and the, the figures, uh, this again, I hope just illustrates the story that I've tried to tell. Uh, what is particularly striking for us is the performance of the so-called emerging economies during the course of the last couple of years. And as you can see in the case of, of everybody, including China, uh, growth performance has weakened significantly across these, the, the so-called block 
of emerging economies and, and in, some, in, in most of these cases, or certainly in a number of these cases, growth rates today are significantly below those that these countries achieved in the first decade of the new millennium when all the enthusiasm about emerging economies began to blow up not only amongst financial analysts but also in the, in the popular media and, and the press and, I would have to add, amongst many academics as, as well. Um, so the, this slowdown, this, this, this shift from a very rapid pace of growth across the developing world in the, in the first decade of the millennium to a fairly abrupt slowdown in the course of the last two decades is something that the report is trying to address and, and many of the policy recommendations that we offer in this report come, out, come from an attempt to understand how developing countries can get back to the kinds of growth rates that we think they need to be able to address the structural deficits that many of them continue to face. And we put a lot of emphasis in our explanation for this, this, this uh, rapid growth and then uh, uh, significant decline to the importance of the external economy. A lot, of, um, a lot of writers have talked about the improvement of growth fundamentals in the developing world. Uh, particularly economists from the Washington-based institutions who attribute the improvement of growth fundamentals to themselves and the advice that they've been offering to these countries over the course of the, of the last uh, 25 years. It's not a story that we find particularly convincing in, in UNCAD. And we think the, the, the real explanation for, for this, for this um, both the s strong growth in the last decade and the weakening of growth in the last couple of years is down to external factors. And there are a series of external factors that the, the, the report looks at. Um, uh, the, 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 uh, the international trading system, which, where, where, which was where export volumes and import volumes were growing very quickly in the first decade of the, of the millennium. Uh, in large part or to a significant extent because the United States continued to act as a consumer of last resort for, for, for the world economy and, and that opened up new trading opportunities for, for many developing countries. As you can see from the, the, the figure on exports, certainly uh, the, there has been a noticeable slowdown in world trade over the course of the last couple of years. World trade is now growing at something like 2% per annum compared with uh, double-digit figures in the, in, in the first uh, decade of the new millennium. So growth was very uh, – trade, the trading environment was favorable in the, in the first decade of the millennium, much less favorable for developing countries today. Um, commodity prices were particularly favorable to developing countries in the first decade of the millennium, hiking of, of, of commodity prices across the board, but particularly in energy and and in uh, minerals and ores, uh, but also in agricultural products, but, but less so. Um, and uh, the usual explanation for that is both demand from emerging economies such as China, but also, and UNCTAD has emphasized this itself in its own work, a significant influence from speculative financial capital entering into, the, into commodity markets, which was a major reason why you got the huge spike of commodity prices in, in 2006 to 2008. Um, those prices collapsed after the crisis, but recovered quite significantly in the period uh, from 2009 to 2010, but have also since begun to, 
to ease off. Um, they haven't dropped down to the levels of the early 2000s, but they certainly de- declined uh, uh, somewhat. And there's a lot of talk amongst academics who work on this about whether we've, we've been through a commodity super cycle and whether that super cycle is now coming to an end and what the possible consequences of that are for, for commodity exporters. But certainly the weakening of prices is not going to help those countries, particularly in Latin America and, and sub-Saharan Africa, whose growth performance over the course of the last 10 to 12 years has depended on, on rising and rapidly rising uh, commodity prices. Um, surging capital flows was another part of the external environment uh, that benefited developing countries. Uh, I guess that's a familiar story to most people here. Um, uh, this is the, you know, as, as we know, most of those capital flows continue to flow amongst developed countries, but there was a significant improvement in developing countries' access to capital markets in the first decade of this millennium, and that actually improved even more relative to the, the, the situation in developed countries in the, in, the, in, in the period immediately after the, uh, the, the financial crisis, from, from at least from 2010. Uh, onwards, where many emerging economies received unprecedentedly, unprecedentedly large volumes of, of mainly short-term uh, uh, capital flows. And we'll come back to that story because that's, that's also beginning to change, as you may have seen in the case of countries like India and Indonesia, with potentially damaging consequences for their, for their growth performance. Again, it's the shift in the international uh, environment that explains the, both the, the, the strong growth in the, last, in the first decade and the weakening of growth in the, in the, um, in the recent uh, couple of years. Uh, Obviously, a lot of the story about the rise, uh, the, the, the crisis that hit in 2008, was about global imbalances. And, and as you can see from, from this breakdown of, balance of, of, of the story, surplus and deficit uh, countries, after 2001, 2002, there was a huge increase in global uh, uh, imbalances in the run-up to uh, the financial crisis of 2008. One of the things that the G20 promised was to get these balances under control. And to some extent, that they did that in 2009. But the last couple of years have once again seen global imbalancing, uh, imbalances rising uh, uh, quite significantly. The, the, the interesting difference in terms of deficit countries, if you look at the, at the, at the bottom uh, uh, bars in this, in this chart, there has been a a noticeable shift in the in the percentage of in the scale of developing countries as deficit countries over the course of the last couple of years in the period in the run up to the crisis the big deficit countries and predominantly so were in the advanced world but over the course of the last two or three dec- uh, two or three year, uh, years the weight of deficit developing countries in 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 that imbalance story has increased proportionally quite significantly, and that's something that, from, from the history that UNCTAD has been involved in, is a particularly worrying, uh, particularly worrying sign again. But, but again, the promise was global balances would be, would be uh, dealt with by coordinated efforts in the G20. Clearly, this kind of chart is an indication of, of their failure to do, to do so. Um, and I guess the last part of this story, again, which should have been done, again was promised, the, 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 the international community promised to deal with it, was to address the problem of bubble-led growth. 
Um, and uh, to get back to a kind of growth story that hinged upon productive investment rather than, in, than, than investment in, in, in paper assets. But there is little sign that that has happened over the course of the last uh, four or five years. Um, uh, you still see uh, huge spikes in equity markets, ups and downs, huge spikes in commodity prices and in, and in currencies. And the particularly worrying trend that you, that you can notice in the period after 2002 is that these assets are now moving in, this, moving in the same direction at the same time. So, so asset prices, currency prices, and uh, uh, sorry, equity prices, uh, commodity prices, and currencies are all moving in the same direction at the same time, and that is a particularly worrying t- uh, uh, combination uh, when it comes to potential systemic threats to the to, to the global economy. Um, so that's the story we have, uh, that, that many of the elements that led to the crisis in 2008 have been coming back in a significant way, and the international community, particularly the advanced countries, have, have, have failed um, miserably to deal effectively with, the, with these systemic threats. The reason we offer, our fundamental reason, is the continued dominance of finance in shaping policy thinking and indeed ideological thinking in the, in, in the advanced countries and to some extent in, in emerging economies. The term silent coup is a term that was coined by Simon Johnson, who was, the, who was formerly the chief, chief economist of the, of the International Monetary Fund, to describe the capture of, of, of um, policy making by uh, unregulated and uh, uncontrolled uh, 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 financial uh, actors and agents. Banks were too big to fail in 2008. They're, in many respects, they're even bigger today than they were in 2008. Certainly in the case of the United States, if you look at the assets of the top five banks, they're bigger, they're bigger today than they were in, in, in 2006. Um, indeed, on, on the, in the phrase of, uh, I think, Anthony Holden, the American Attorney General, banks in America are not only too big to fail, they're too big to prosecute as well. Uh, which is a particularly uh, disturbing trend in a modern democracy. Um, Derivative trades are on the rise again. The the numbers are quite astronomical and have have been increasing significantly in the the course of the last couple of years, uh, along with familiar toxic practices that have have accompanied the rise of derivative trades. Uh, Incentives remain heavily skewed to the short term. Um, There's been a... There was an, an initial... Enthusiasm for regulation immediately after the crisis that has retreated in most countries over the course of the last two or three years. Uh, the efforts that um, American financial actors have put into removing the fangs from Dodd-Frank are just in, uh, are an obvious indication of that kind of effort. And, and sadly, um, there's been a persistent failure to stimulate productive investment. Finan- the role of finance, if it has a role in any modern economy, is to ensure that the, the productive side of the economy has access to the, re, the, the required finance to, 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 to help it uh, uh, invest in, in, in long-term assets and, 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 and skills. And that has been a persistent failure of the, of the uh, not only of the recent period, but also 
of the of, of the longer term period. This is a this is a chart that simply maps at a global level um, the the share of fixed capital formation in world GDP and the share of international financial flows, the the solid line, the bottom line. And essentially, you can see the scissor movement in which these two trends have been moving almost in the opposite direction for the over the course of the last. Um, uh, uh, two decades or more. Um, so for us, the issue, I mean, as a, we're a development agency, we don't, we don't focus our attentions on, on the workings of advanced economies so much, although we have an interest in those to the extent that they affect developing countries, but our focus is on, on what has been happening in the developing world. And the question we ask with um, due acknowledgement to Stevie Smith is whether, is whether the South is waving at us or, or drowning with, and, and, and I guess we, we are inching towards the, the belief that the South actually is now submerging rather than emerging. And that is the challenge that policymakers in institutions like UNCTAD need to face up to and, and come up with, um, with possible uh, solutions to that problem. The, the, the indicators of, of the South drowning are, are, are presented here. Um, we, we, I mean, there are exceptions to the rule. We tend to think that China, for example, continues to impress, doesn't impress to the same extent that it was doing before the crisis, but, but growth, not only growth rates in China continue to be impressive, but, uh, but the, the, the nature of structural change in China continu- continues to impress. But they, they need to change, they, they too need to change their growth tr- strategy. They need to be less dependent upon export markets, more dependent upon the domestic market in terms of sustaining growth over, the, over the, um, the coming years. But if we were to bet on countries that would escape the middle income trap over the course of the next 10 years, I think most of us would put our money on China rather than Brazil, India, or South Africa, who face much more uh, systemic uh, challenges when it comes to uh, sustaining uh, rapid and inclusive growth uh, over, over this period. Um, Let me just skip this. So what, what, what are we offering in terms of, and what, what is the report offering in terms of, in terms of new growth strategies? And I, I guess I've got how long? Five minutes? Three minutes? <laughs> um, it's a fairly simple story. It's not, it's not particularly new. Uh, it's a focus on much more on, on the domestic sources of growth. Uh, domestic resource mobilization, but also raising domestic wages. We worry that in, in response to the slowdown, countries will try and look for an, uh, to export their way out of their current problems by suppressing wages, which we, don't think, which we think would be a, a self-defeating kind of uh, 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 response. We need to see rising domestic wages in the developing world as the basis on which you get expanding uh, domestic markets. Uh, raising public revenues, which are still very weak across most of the developing world, to allow governments the room to not only engage in counter-cyclical policies when required, but also to invest in the infrastructure, which many of them are still very sorely lacking in a country like India. That's a a major constraint on, on, on future growth. And they need to engage in industrial restructuring uh, to meet um, the, the, the potential of, uh, of an expanding uh, domestic market. Uh, there's a lot of talk now about a rising middle class in the South. Um, that's become another popular phrase, and, and to some extent we, have our, we are optimistic about that, although, again, there's a danger of that story being oversold. 
but but it, with with with, a, with increasing incomes in the south come the the prospect of new market opportunities for for domestic investors and it's important that it is domestic firms in the developing world that that latch onto these opportunities rather than for them simply to provide new market opportunities for uh, international firms and TNCs from the advanced countries uh, in that context, we do see real potential for South-South trade and investment. As these countries grow, uh, expand their own domestic markets, we would hope that there will be much more um, uh, opportunity for South-South uh, economic linkages through trade and investment. That's already been happening. Um, that's already, it's, it's, it's already been happening over the course of the last decade. South-South trade has become a much more prominent part of the international trading system. It now accounts for uh, around 25% of international trade, um, although too much of South-South trade is still driven by markets in the north through global value chains and still depends too, much, too heavily on, on international TNCs and, and, international, uh, and their technology for, for, for its dynamism. So South-South trade has been a, a positive opportunity, but we would like to, uh, we would like to see a, a, a much stronger a southern imprint in, in global value chains and South-South trade if that's going to be part of a, of, of a, of a sustainable uh, growth process. Finally, I guess the last issue, and I'll, I'll do this very quickly, um, as I said, all this kind of reorientation of developing countries towards a more domestically driven growth path depends upon fast rates of capital formation investment levels need to rise across most of the developing world. The Chinas of this world may have 40% investment rates, but investment in Brazil has stubbornly been at or below 20% for the course of the last 10 years or more, and sub-Saharan African countries have, have constantly found it very difficult to raise their investment rates above 25%, which is a target that in UNCTAD we think they should be hitting. And that requires financial systems that are not geared towards fighting inflation and investing in, in, in speculative assets. It requires a financial system that can backstop uh, the building of domestic capacity through the expansion of domestic firms. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's often very, it's a forgotten point, sadly, amongst economists. Most uh, productive investment depends upon the reinvestment of profits. Anything between 50 and 65% of new investment comes from reinvested profits. And that becomes a dynamism, as it did in, for example, and Robert knows this better than, than, than I do, in, in countries like Taiwan and Korea, because you had financial systems that could leverage that reinvested profits in a very virtuous type of investment circle that could drive productivity growth, that could drive um, uh, competitiveness of these firms at the same time as it was allowing incomes to rise, domestic markets to rise, and a kind of virtuous circle being created between productivity, rising incomes, higher levels of investment, rising productivity, which ultimately for us is the basis of sustained growth across the, across the developing world. Okay, thank you. Sorry about that. So, um, 
I'm going to talk about something not completely different, but something complementary rather than overlapping with what Richard has just talked about, which is uh, relevant to the question of how it is that Richard, that is representing UNCTAD, came to be saying, came to be making the argument that he has just made. Um, and I want to begin with um, the IMF's forecast for the world economy coming from mid-2006. This is Ann Kruger, who is the top, was the top-ranking American in the IMF, who said, in 2006, in recent times, the world economy has rarely been in better shape than it is today. The global economy appears to be more resilient in the face of shocks than it was even a short time ago. This is mid-2006 from the IMF. This is the OECD forecast for the world economy a year later, mid-2007, from the chief economist, saying a smooth rebalancing was to be expected, with Europe taking over the baton from the United States in driving OECD growth. The current economic situation is in many ways better than what we have experienced in years. Our central forecast remains quite benign. We expect the OECD to show strong job creation and falling unemployment. Well, how does this compare with what UNCTAD was saying? UNCTAD was making very different forecasts all through the 2000s. And the trade and development reports, TDRs, is trade and development reports, were warning all through the 2000s of growing imbalances in the world economy which were liable to produce economic and financial instability. And so UNCTAD, from the beginning, dissented from the emerging consensus in the West that we had entered a benign state of what came to be called the great moderation, that is relatively fast economic growth and low inflation, high employment. UNCTAD dissented from this prognosis about the future. Um, rather, in the TDRs and other publications, UNCTAD showed the systemic nature of the instability in the world economy rooted in such global uh, economic architectural and financial architectural features to do with the exchange rate regime, for example, with free capital flows, with the disconnect between productivity growth and wage growth, that is productivity growth higher than wage growth, producing a chronic tendency to a deficiency of aggregate demand, which was solved in the short run by increased borrowing on the part of those whose wages were falling. Uh, that going, of course, with increased inequality in terms of income concentration at the top and then squeezed labor income lower down. And UNCTAD um, in particular showed the similarity in the mechanisms which produced earlier the East Asian stroke Latin American stroke Russian crises of the late 1990s, the similarities in the mechanisms that produced those crises with what was going on in the world economy over the 2000s. And on the basis of these similarities, it was warning well before 2008 that we were in a, a, a situation of great instability, great fragility and then uh, instability. And the contrast was with what people in the West, such as Alan Greenspan, such as Larry Summers, was saying about the causes of the East Asian crisis, namely that, that those crises 
in East Asia, also Latin America and Russia, were due to things like crony capitalism in those countries or state-directed capitalism in those countries. In other words, those countries brought the crises on themselves because of internal features, whoops, internal features of their governance. The, this crisis had nothing to do with the structure of the global economy. That's the line of argument that UNCTAD was dissenting from. Um, and the short answer to why UNCTAD got it right, that is about this crisis in 2008, and the Bretton Woods organizations, not just the IMF, also the World Bank, together with the OECD, got it wrong. The short answer is that um, the OECD, the Bretton Woods in institutions, are controlled by the Western states who didn't want attention directed at uh, flaws in their own economic policies, their own economic structures, or in the global system, rather wanted to direct attention to flaws in the developing countries, whereas UNCTAD, being more influenced by southern states, and was more independent of the Western or neoliberal consensus about what is good for the world economy. So UNCTAD got it right, the Bretton Woods organizations and the OECD got it wrong. And so the question is, did Western states applaud UNCTAD for its prescience um, after 2008? The short answer is a very emphatic no. Um, for example, in the negotiations about UNCTAD's next four years, which culminated in the meeting in Doha in 2000, April 2012, the Western states tried very hard to prevent UNCTAD from analyzing global issues of the kind that Richard has just been talking about. The Western states said UNCTAD should limit itself to the effects of the international system on uh, developing countries, DCs, developing countries, um, not the international system itself. Um, it, UNCTAD should also emphasize things like poverty in developing countries, uh, youth problems in developing countries, gender problems in developing countries, but it should leave the question of the design of the international financial system, the design of the international economy, should leave uh, those kind of things to the big boys. The big boys meaning the Bretton Woods organizations, the OECD, the G20, that is organizations that the Western states control. And so the question is why? How is this justified? Why did the Western states try very hard in these negotiations in Doha in 2012 to limit what UNCTAD could do over the next four years, to make it much more difficult for UNCTAD to do the kinds of things that Richard has just been talking about? Well, one, because the Western states said um, the, UNCTAD has a competence problem. Now, this was said to me. I was at the Doha meeting as an observer, and the Norwegian ambassador to these negotiations said to me that um, it was the consensus in the Western group that UNCTAD had a competence problem in terms of what it could say about the international system, whereas the World Bank, the IMF, the OECD, and so on, did not have a competence problem. Therefore, UNCTAD should not be speaking about those things. But there was also another reason behind why the Western states were saying to UNCTAD, stop talking about the international system. 
Um, and it comes out in this exchange between a senior UNCTAD official and a European ambassador uh, connected to these negotiations in Doha. So the UNCTAD official said to the ambassador, do you think that all international organizations should speak with a single voice about the causes of the global financial crisis and the prescriptions to avoid another? And the European ambassador said, without hesitation, I think yes. That is, the international, all international organizations should speak with a single voice, meaning, of course, our voice. That is to say, the Western voice. Um, well, despite the efforts in, um, in Doha, um, right at the very end of the negotiations, the Western states, having got a lot of what they were pushing for in terms of the text of the mandate for the next four years, Finally, almost in, just in the last minute, in the last few days, China, um, South Africa, Brazil, not India, climbed into the driving seat of the G77. The G77 is the negotiating group of the developing countries. So finally, China, uh, Brazil, South Africa stepped into the driving seat and managed to push back against the Western agenda and secured some wiggle room in the mandate for UNCTAD to continue working on global issues. And the key country that did this was China in the role of leading from behind. China did it very quietly without any kind of uh, big presence, but everybody was paying a lot of attention to what China was saying. And so against that background, you can understand perhaps why I, for one, and many others were very relieved to read this year's trade and development report to see that it continues the UNCTAD tradition of placing analyses and prescriptions in the public domain which differ in important respects from those of the Western-controlled organizations like the OECD and the Bretton Woods organizations, which differ in important respects, but with this qualification, which is that over the past one or two years, these Western organizations have themselves moved, without acknowledging it, but they have themselves moved in the direction of what UNCTAD has been saying for quite a long time. For example, on issues to do with capital controls, to do with the costs of fiscal austerity rather than fiscal stimulus, um, to do with the costs of income and wealth inequality. The Western organizations have begin, begun to shift somewhat in the direction that UNCTAD has been talking about for the past quite a few years. So um, I'm coming to the end of this, and I want to make an appeal to Western social movements, Western NGOs who are concerned with developments, like the Overseas Development Institute in Britain, Oxfam, the World Development Movement, and so on, uh, you should be lobbying the British government to reverse its general lack of support for UNCTAD because the British government is quite prominent in opposing the kind of direction that UNCTAD has been moving in, along with a lot of other Western countries, but the British government has been quite prominent in not giving UNCTAD much support. And so these, the, these NGOs and civil society should be challenging um, not just this lack of support for UNCTAD, but the larger Western strategy since the Cold War, since the ascendancy of the Washington Consensus, that is the neoliberal prescription for how the whole world should, all governments should um, carry out the economic policy, 
um, Western NGOs should be challenging this Western government strategy, uh, which is to limit UN agencies to humanitarian issues and to security issues, and then to keep the financial issues in the hands of the IMF, to keep the development issues in the hands of the World Bank, and then to have the OECD kind of pushing out a rather neoliberal line complementing the efforts of the IMF and the World Bank. Um, and therefore, in this way, keeping Western control of the key parts of the international financial and e economic agenda because of Western control of the IMF and the World Bank and getting them the, the international community to speak with a single voice in the way that the European ambassador wanted, the single voice being our voice, that is the Western states' voice. This is the kind of thing that Western NGOs should be challenging. Um, it's not just UNCTAD that this strategy is being applied to. It's being applied to all UN agencies which deal which do not deal with humanitarian or security issues. For example, UNIDO, the United Nations Industrial Development Organization based in Vienna. The U.S. withdrew from this organization in 1996. The U.K. withdrew more recently. France is in the process of withdrawing. Both Britain and France are pressing the Dutch to withdraw. Um, and so um, what is particularly interesting in the case of UNIDO right now is that as of July of this year, a Chinese national has been appointed to head UNIDO. And this really does change the playing field. China now has this a very prominent position in charge of UNIDO, and China is very angry at the Western states at, and their lack of support for UNIDO, so that, for example, it has been suggested that China's recent um, uh, cancellation of a big trade deal with France, a trade deal worth 7.5 billion euros, China recently cancelled this, partly in protest at the French process of withdrawing from UNIDO just as a Chinese national got into this position. So very interesting politics are going on in quite a number of these international organizations. But as I said, the problem is that the Western states are not giving much support to the parts of the United Nations system which deal with development, with international finance, because they want those issues to be in the hands of organizations that the Western states control. And so finally, uh, almost finally rather, um, I, I think that everybody who cares about the multilateral system of global governance should keep in mind this Swahili proverb which captures um, the problem with asymmetrical power relations. Namely, until the lions have their own historians, the history of hunting will always glorify the hunters. That has been the case for the past uh, 200 years or so, and um, we are now seeing that some of the lions are beginning to have their own historians, so to speak. I want to leave you with just two things that come from the um, Trade and Development Report, which uh, capture two big issues in the world economy today. Um, the first one is to do with the asymmetries between the share of population in the advanced countries, ACs, advanced countries, 
um, and their share of world GDP. So you see in 1990 that the advanced countries had 17% of world population and accounted for 79%, almost 80% of world GDP. Um, And that has changed substantially, there's no doubt, in the sense that their share of population has gone to 15% and their share of world GDP at 60%. By the way, the shares of GDP are not in purchasing power parity terms. They're in more or less current exchange rate terms, current dollars. Um, But uh, then in terms of developing countries, 81% of world population and about 36% of world GDP. So you can see that although certainly there's been um, an increase in the share of developing countries in world GDP relative to their share of population, Um, there is still a very long way to go until developing countries have roughly the same share of world GDP as they do of world population. You can see just how big is that asymmetry. And finally, one of the most dramatic graphs you will have already seen, one of the most dramatic graphs in the TDR is this one, shows the share of labor income as the share of world gross Output um, over 1980 to uh, 2011. This is one of the most important charts you need to understand in order to understand what's been happening in the world, in order to understand this current financial crisis. The point being that as labor income goes down, profit income goes up, and so the people whose wages are being squeezed either put up with it, number one, or they protest, they riot, they go out into the streets as in the Middle East because they don't have jobs, their incomes are being squeezed and squeezed, or they borrow. And um, that's what we have been seeing in the West over the past um, decade or so, and that's why, because of this increase in borrowing, we are in the predicament that we are in. Um, And until we get a, um, a system which will keep wage growth more or less in line with productivity growth, then we will be in a permanent state of instability in the world economy at large. Thank you. both speakers for very informative and inspiring lectures. And now I will open the floor uh, for questions. Please raise your hand. Do you prefer to take Two or three. Yeah, we take two or three questions at the same time. So please raise your hand and wait for the microphone. <coughs> so there's one here, one at the back, and one there. Let's take <coughs> There is already a talk uh, of reversing the policy of quantitative easing in rich countries. What would you think the consequences of this reversal would be for developing countries that have a very high current account deficit like India and and especially Turkey? 
Thank you for your thoughts. Very interesting. Uh, Richard, I have a question. Uh, you mentioned that the, the, some of the development in developing countries should come from within rather than from international uh, companies. Um, I know that China, for example, had uh, got managed to get a lot of transfer of knowledge from international companies entering China and have managed to use it on their own benefit. But from some countries in Africa that have uh, very high resources like Guinea Conakry or RDC Congo, how can they manage to get this transfer of knowledge that they so much need uh, to build that development from uh, within? Um, hi, Robert. I've got a couple of questions. Uh, the first one is you initially mentioned about there being a current bubble. So since the last five years, we have actually entered a phase of the current bubble. Uh, what is that bubble about? Um, and the second one is in terms of addressing growth inequality, where you know the, predominantly the Western uh, finance system and the organizations such as you know World Bank, IMF, they've been focusing on their own. Is the way to counter that is what the BRICS are currently doing, creating their own development bank and uh, using that uh, organization as their channel to pool the resources and address those? Thank you. Um, on the on, I mean on, on the issue of uh, um, QE, I mean we do argue in the report that part of the recent um, uh, kind of speculative bubbles in in a number of developing countries are linked quite clearly to quantitative easing. I mean that's true of when you see currencies in Brazil increasing by 40% plus, you know, and then, and then dropping by 20%. This has to do with, with um, carry trade and, and other features that are clearly linked to quantitative easing. Uh, I mean, the worrying thing about Bernanke is that even though it was a hinting, he hinted that maybe quantitative easing will begin to ease off in, in a year or two. The immediate impact seems to have been currency crises in India, where the rupee has, has dropped precipitously, and in, and in Indonesia, which is now undergoing that. Turkey, perhaps a little less so, but, but, certainly, but certainly India and, and Indonesia are now facing very serious uh, currency crises. And, uh, and those are clearly, I, mean, I think for us, they're an, a further indication that the talk of decoupling it has been seriously oversold. If, if countries can go into crisis on the uh, on the remarks of the on the remarks of the, of the of the chairman of the Federal Reserve, clearly you have not entered a decoupled world. I mean that that follows pretty in a fairly obvious way. So 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 you know behind that, as you point out. Countries like India have been running fairly large current account deficits, and, and that is, there are structural problems in the Indian economy that, that lie behind that. But the fact is that they are economies that are clearly now vulnerable to external shocks of one kind or another. Um, and, and that's a worry. That's something that we worried, we've worried about, as, as Robert said, for a long time and, and continues to, to concern us. On the, on the, on the issue of, of whether you know, resource-dependent countries in Africa still will require technical assistance or, 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 or support or technology transfer from, from um, TNCs. I mean, the answer is they should. I mean, 
we would like to see technology transfer from TNCs into Afri African economies through the investment in the resource sector. It just doesn't happen, however. I mean, there is no indication of large-scale technology transfer linked to resource uh, enclaves. Uh, in, in, in minerals or in, in energy production. So the, it's not actually a very, it's not a very plausible route to actually acquire uh, the technologies that they need. Um, more importantly, I think when you're talking about what the, the challenge for Africa is, for us at least, is, is a challenge of industrialization and diversification. And the kinds of industries that it needs to move into are not necessarily particularly technologically sophisticated industries. I mean, the likely candidates for Africa's diversification are either in terms of processing, more effective processing of those raw materials, or into relatively unskilled, um, uh, low-technology uh, sectors. Now, we know there are lots of problems in, for Af facing Africa in doing that, of which China is not a, an insignificant one, given its its particular um, uh, competitive advantages at this point in its history. But, but I, don't think, I don't think the challenge there is one of, 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 of technological sophistication. It's about raising the investment rates in, 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 in Africa, about raising particularly public investment, improving infrastructure. It's a lot of very basic stuff that, that there was neglected under structural adjustment programs, but which African policymakers need to get back to if they are going to effectively move away from, from resource dependence. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the, the re-emergence of, of, of bubbles, um, I mean, it seems to be, I mean, it certainly seems to be a feature not only of advanced economies and... Uh, a lot of people would argue that the recent growth in this economy has a lot to do with, with the re-blowing of a housing bubble, for example, which has, been, has translated into an improvement in growth performance, but a lot of us would suspect it's not sustainable. Um, but you also see similar features in, in, in India, for example. There's clearly been a, a housing bubble in, in some of the emerging economies. Um, certainly in Brazil. Um, so, so you know, it's 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 not the only feature of growth over the course of the last five years. I mean, clearly, some countries have continued to to uh, invest heavily, to effectively export. In the case of China, I mean, it's not the only cause of economic growth in in emerging economies, but it does seem to have been a recurrent feature uh, of the last uh, three or four years. Uh, in terms of the, I mean, the BRICS Bank. I mean, as I, as I mentioned in my um, in my presentation, one of the legs that we would like to see strengthened uh, in terms of finding alternative growth strategies is the South-South leg. And uh, there's a lot of rhetoric in South-South cooperation, a lot of rhetoric in South-South cooperation. But the BRICS Bank, if it takes place, at least as we see it, would probably be a, some something of a game changer. And and the and the willingness of a country like China to to shift some of its surpluses from from U.S. Treasuries into long-term uh, uh, financing in in other parts of the developing world would offer huge opportunities, not only for for the emerging economies, but I think for for many for many poorer countries in in, in Africa and and parts of Asia. So for us, I mean, it's it's and it's moved beyond. I mean, in the case, I think there was a lot of expectation that in the in the BRICS meeting in Durban last year, there would be something more concrete put on the table 
on the BRICS bank, but it's still being negotiated. But it's beyond the drawing board now. It's, something is going to happen. Uh, they've already announced a currency swap fund, the BRICS, as a way of fending off potential uh, financial shocks and on, a, on a fairly large scale too. And so we do expect some, something to emerge out of the, the discussion of the BRICS Bank in the course of the next six months. And, and for us, at least, in Antad, that would be a, a significant step forward in terms of South-South cooperation. Thank you. Robert, do you want to other? Okay. So there is oh, well, three on this side. So I think Hello. Uh, thank you very much for your speech. Um, we have heard a lot about the problems, but I would like to um, ask about the solutions. Because, um, as you said very well, there, there was a big crisis. Uh, there were a lot of kind of good ideas what should happen, but nothing happened. And, of course, on one hand, the bank lobby is strong. But on the other hand, you also mentioned the idea of ideology and the kind of Western or neoliberal you know, mindset that has led to, to all these problems. And I'm wondering um, if it isn't time for a kind of a more systemic change and if we shouldn't really start thinking also about what are the aims of our economies and if GDP growth is really, you know, the ultimate aim that we should look for if, if we should move beyond that and think about something else. And I was just wondering what are your thoughts on, on that and, and if so, if you have any kind of proposals. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I was just wondering, given, given that you almost had to justify your mandate last year um, in Doha, how optimistic, and assuming you are, um, why, why is that? Why, you, why would you be optimistic about the future, given that um, you, had to, you had to struggle, you had to justify why you're here? And do you think you can provide, uh, you, ca you can become a serious counterweight to the neoliberal um, institution that you mentioned? Thanks. Hi, good evening. Felipe Kraus from the Brazilian Embassy. Thank you so much to both speakers for your, for your presentations. Uh, a brief comment on uh, Professor Wade's uh, presentation. Um, it, it, it echoes, I mean, I fully applaud what you say. It echoes, in a way, um, an unfortunate incident which happened this week where a Brazilian uh, UN official came to this country to assess the uh, housing situation um, and was met with, you know, a, a barrage of, 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 you know, almost insults, uh, you know, uh, directed at her, her gender and her nationality. Um, so, uh, yes, how, how dare a Brazilian woman come here? And, and So, again, echoing what you're saying about um, how the UN should be, this attempt that, uh, to make the UN uh, concentrate on the problems of the developing countries but not look at uh, the problems that are... Uh, emerging from the uh, advanced economies. Um, but, and then, sorry, just a very quick question uh, for uh, Dr. Wright. Um, what is your uh, perspective uh, on the role of the WTO in the, in the coming years? Thank you. Um, yeah, quickly, I, I mean, I, I don't want to give the impression that, I mean, the, the report tries to offer solutions. I mean, it, as I said, we, 
we're talking about an alternative with a greater emphasis on, on, on building up domestic markets and on building up domestic productive capacity. And in that context, I, I, the report um, does, does, does try and offer solutions. And a lot of those solutions are not just kind of picked out of thin air. I mean, what did happen in the, in the, in the period when developing countries were growing quickly after this start of the millennium was there was a, actually a, there was a break with the Washington consensus in many of these countries and a, and a greater willingness to contemplate more heterodox or more innovative depending on your position uh, policies um, and yeah and that includes countries like Brazil for example that you know, it, um, which is a country we look at uh, in terms of some of its social policies it, it's, it's, its use of the minimum wage as a way of of strengthening um, uh, the, the domestic market, which, is, which has been an important part of that story, the role of BNDES, development banks in general, but the role of BNDES, the Brazilian Development Bank, is one that we've looked at very carefully as being a, an innovative kind of financial tool that can more effectively channel resources into productive investment, and a lot of other developing countries are turning to BNDES for, for technical advice in, in, in revisiting their own development banks, because, as, as Robert pointed out, Part of the structural adjustment agenda was to rubbish all the kinds of policy efforts that many developing countries had engaged in, actually quite successfully, in the 1960s and the 1970s. And these were, these were statists, they were interventionist, and therefore they must be uh, wrong-headed. And in fact, a lot of people are looking again at these experiences and trying, a lot of them, there were certainly mistakes made, but a lot of them also engaged in, in, in successful uh, processes. And so there's a revisiting of those, and to some extent that's the report is right. It's, we're not reinventing the wheel when it comes to alternative policies. I'm not... I'm the, 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 is GDP... I got the sense that you worry about GDP being appropriate as a... I, I, I guess, I, you know, it's, it's the Woody Allen thing. You know, money, money is better than poverty, if only for financial reasons. And, uh, and there's something about GND, GDP is still, is still relevant as a measure of, of uh, economic success because it somehow captures what people want from, from the development process. So, I mean, I, I appreciate the criticisms as a, as a crude average, but, but, but it's still not a bad guide to, to countries that have, that have succeeded. It's not an accident that, you know, China with a very traditional focus on some of these kinds of measures, has lifted more people out of poverty in the space of 20 years than the rest of humanity in its previous thousand. I mean, I don't think it's an accident, and it's a very traditional focus that, that the Chinese government has had in that respect. Um, I'm optimistic. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not, was I optimistic? I'm not sure I'm optimistic about Untad. I have to think about that uh, a little harder. I mean, we, you know... We used to be contenders in UNCTAD. I mean, you know, that we used to be... If you read it, there's an excellent book by Mark Mazower, the, the, the historian called Governing the World, A History of an Idea. And when you read that, uh, that, that history in the 60s and 70s, the, the principal development, the principal focus for contesting the orientation of the international economic system was UNCTAD. We, we are no longer that institution and, and think well, the world has changed and lots of things have moved on. I mean, the optimism for me, if there is, comes from the rise of the South. 
ultimately we're a political organization we were born politically we rose politically we will die politically and and the the, the encouraging thing of the last decade is this reemergence of solidarity amongst developing countries and to some extent that is reflected in, in what Robert talked about in terms of what happened in Doha and that has to give us some degree of encouragement in terms of uh, in terms of moving forward the, the advanced countries despite their arrogance, are far less confident than they were 15 uh, uh, or even 10 years ago. And, uh, and that's a ch- I mean, that is a sea change. You, you see it everywhere. Um, it hasn't translated fully into backing up Angtad in the way I would like it to, but it's beginning to. It's beginning to. So, there is, I mean, for us, that's, if anything, where the optimism... I, WTO, I think, if I'm not mistaken, a Brazilian was recently made head of the WTO. I'm not sure I want to comment on. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for Azevedo as a, as a, as a negotiator and, and as a person because he was instrumental in, in what happened in, in, in Antan 13. But I wish him well. I don't think he has an easy job. Yeah. Let me just make a couple of. One of them is about Benedes, the Brazil Development Bank. It is quite extraordinary how big it has become in a very short space of time. It is lending, I think, more now than the World Bank plus the Inter-American Development Bank put together. That's how much it's lending, and lending not just in Brazil, not just in South America, but in Africa and other parts of the world. It's operating now on a huge scale. Um, I think uh, that your question about, um, about what the purpose of development is it, it actually goes beyond the question of whether GDP is a good measure or not. And I have to say that I am myself, I am always uncomfortable when I hear people like uh, Richard, uh, Angtad, World Bank, everybody in development talking as though Um, the key thing is to get developing countries and indeed developed countries as well to grow faster. We must have more faster growth. And the reason I'm uncomfortable is because it reflects a kind of dichotomy, a a bifurcation um, between economic growth on the one hand and this looming problem over the whole of uh, humanity of climate change and the associated uh, things we talk easily of sustainable development, but that's just uh, that's just a phrase. That's just putting two words together, which seem to imply that there is a solution, a kind of an easy solution. We just go in between um, environmental constraints and development. Somehow we find a middle path, and that's the solution. But it's actually not like that, and. Um, I, I do think that there, there is a very serious intellectual problem. I haven't resolved it for myself um, in, in talking the way that we have been talking this evening, that everybody in development talks, as though the key thing is to get growth rates back up um, uh, in a way that doesn't just take account of this question of what about environmental constraints, both on the, on the input side and on the um, sink or outputs side. Just finally then on the WTO, let me say I think that one of the big issues that has to be pushed is to have a change in norms, in global norms about free trade. We have to have 
a change which will expand the legitimate use of trade protection. That is an absolutely heretical thing to say. No self-respecting economist would say that. I'm sure even UNCTAD can't, uh, won't allow itself to say that. But I don't see any way of um, developing relatively high-skilled activities in developing countries, for example, in Africa and much of South America, when given the existence of China, um, uh, not to mention the West, I don't see any way that these skills can be developed on a large scale um, if, there is, if countries are, are hardly allowed to use um, protection, trade protection. Um, on that heretical note, I will stop before I'm burnt. <laughs> Sitting too close to an economist. Yes. <laughs> so there's more questions. There's one there and two here. Uh, can I please remind you to introduce yourselves before asking questions? Thank you. Hi, Jacob Taylor. Um, question for Richard on financial regulation. You mentioned that you thought that the regulation of derivatives markets has been bad or at least slow, um, which is a bit surprised about because under Dodd-Frank and Amir, we basically determined that we're going to clear all deliver- derivatives to clearing houses and report them to regulators. So I guess my question is, what more needs to be done in the derivatives markets? And if we're going to regulate them further, does that hinder another objective, which is that we want to get banks lending more and creating more credit? Um, hi, I'm Ana Sofia, and recently the Alliance of the Pacific Regional Integration has been a very hot topic. Sorry, can you start Speaking. again? We couldn't hear. Oh, uh, yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. I'm Ana Sofia, and recently the Alliance of the Pacific Regional Integration has been a very hot topic. I was wondering if maybe you thought regional integration, especially in developing countries, would be a positive way of stimulating internal growth without uh, being too protectionist as has been the case in Argentina, which has been damaging them more than being positive in their economies. Um, hi, my name is Veronica, and she actually asked my question, but I was going to ask, um, regarding regional integration as well, uh, my question was, um, in terms of countries joining together, particularly in Africa, can, that, can they use that strategy um, in int- introducing to financial markets as well? I read a book um, by the Mizumoyo, which talked about um, how they can enter bond markets, but as a region, more than a single, mar- than a single country, and that would be a better way to grow, so then both beneficial instead of um, using important institution type of policies. Thank you. Um, quickly, on, I mean, on, on the issue of derivatives, I mean, my understanding is well, banks are now com- essentially complaining that, that, um, that the derivative market has shifted away from them to hedge funds and other financial institutions. That's, they're, they're, they're worried that they're losing, that they're losing out uh, as a consequence of the, of the regulation. But that's, I mean, that in a sense, essentially, that's just shifting the nature of the problem rather than addressing it. I mean, to me, 
Derivative, I mean, there's a legitimate role for any sort of hedging or, ins- or, or insurance mechanism uh, that we're familiar with. When, when these become essentially bets rather than hedging instruments, which is essentially what derivatives have, have become, the argument is, I think, not one of, 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 of regulating, but one of, of banning the use of some of these toxic instruments for, uh, uh, as, as a, because of the potentially destructive consequences that they appear to have on the, on the real economy. And I don't think that Dodd-Frank or any of the other proposals that, that have been put forward and significantly watered down uh, as a consequence of the lobbying of the financial industry in the case of Dodd-Frank, for sure, um, ha- have really addressed the toxic nature of a lot of these instruments. And if, and if, as people, and if they are, as Buffett said, um, instruments of, of mass... Do you call them instruments of mass destruction? Yeah. Then, then, then they should be treated as such, and they should be... And they should be... And they should be um, treated like any toxic instrument and subject to the to the to the full force of the of the regulatory uh, authorities and I, I don't think that's happening um, with with much of these with much of this activity um, on the regional I mean we are you know UNCTAD part of our initial mandate was to encourage regional integration that was part of the work of Raoul Prebish who who created who was one of the creators of UNCTAD in the in the early 1960s and when you look at um, successful trade, expi- trade export-led growth models and trading experiences over the course of the last 50 years, then clearly a lot of it has taken place within the regional context. That was true of Western Europe in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s, and it was certainly true of the East Asian success stories in the 1970s and the 1980s. And, 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 and there are reasons why regional integration makes sense as, as part of a more, more balanced um, development strategy. The difficulty is when you come to countries in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where regional in, there are thousands of regional integration schemes on the books in, in sub-Saharan Africa, but none of them really seem to generate much in the way of, of interregional trade. And that's partly because of the similarity of the economic structures of these economies and, and as well as weaknesses in, in geopolitics and other factors. Um, but, but we would certainly, in, in UNCTAD, be, be very supportive of, of regional initiatives as long as they were combined with the kind of efforts to build up productive uh, capacities, which I think are a necessary part of, 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 uh, of an effective of, of, of countries effectively integrating into the larger economy, whether that's at the global scale or, or the regional scale. Thank you. I think we have only time for one last question. Just have to. <laughs> the first one. Hello. Thanks for your talks. Um, I wonder if you could elaborate a bit more on how um, policy measures can drive wage growth uh, in line with productivity growth, as Robert said was the aim. Um, you mentioned minimum wages, but um, I think industrial policy might be, be part of that, which has also been mentioned. But um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the space for industrial policy in, in the current, uh, current climate. That would be good to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the report makes a case again for industrial policy 
as, as well as for the use in some countries also of incomes policies, a more formal tying of, of, of wage, of wage uh, increases to, to um, productivity uh, performance. So, I mean, I think, uh, I, I think both incomes policies, minimum wage policies, um, public employment schemes, industrial policy can all be used as a way of trying to create this kind of virtuous circle between productivity growth, wage growth, expanding markets, rising levels of capital formation, higher, le- higher rates of productivity growth. And I, I think those, uh, I mean, I won't address Robert's issues of whether that's what are the environmental issues behind that. I mean, I agree that it is a huge challenge. But in terms of the traditional development objectives, creating that kind of virtuous circle is fundamentally what what economic development is all about. And industrial policy, which again has been dismissed, particularly by the Washington institutions in the context of adjustment programs, is once again coming back because it's quite clear that a country like China, part of its success has been its willingness to use the kinds of policies that Robert talked about, including protectionist measures, including subsidies, including including um, uh, channeling uh, credit to favoured sectors and indeed, in some cases, favoured firms. Uh, why it's worked in China and similar measures have not worked in the Philippines is an important and interesting question that that if you're advocating industrial policy as a, as a possible tool in the policy toolkit, we need to address, and that gets you into issues of why are some states, it seems quite effective in, in using these without um, being captured by uh, uh, narrow interest groups, whereas others appear to want to use these policies but are very quickly captured by, by, by narrower interests, often usually to the detriment of the of the, of, the, of the wider growth process. And that's, I, I, mean, I have a project, for example, with the International Labour Office revisiting the whole question of industrial policy because lots of countries in Latin America, lots of countries in East Asia are looking again at, 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 the, at the role of industrial policies in their growth strategies. And, and it's certainly something in UNCTAD that we've never felt uncomfortable recommending as part of, of, of a comprehensive and integrated development framework. Just uh, let me add something on that, um, and it relates to the World Bank. Um, in 2008, um, a Chinese national, Justin Yifu Lin, was appointed chief economist at the World Bank. This was the first time the World Bank's chief economist had ever been from outside the G7 countries. And um, uh, Justin Yifu Lin uh, began to argue as chief economist for the bank in favor of a very modest kind of industrial policy, that is a very modest role of the state in promoting certain broad activities ahead of others. And there was, um, there was a strong pushback from all, just about all bank economists. Uh, Mr. Lin himself said that less than 10% of world bank economists agreed with this and when I was doing research in the World Bank in 2010, one of his Lin's own economists in the research part of the bank dismissed Lin's ideas for this very modest kind of industrial policy by saying to me, "For every Korea, there are a hundred failures. Who would you put your money on?" Meaning that uh, industrial policy equaled what Korea did. If you didn't do what Korea did, then somehow it wasn't industrial policy. This is a really stupid kind of reaction. It's a knee-jerk reaction, which was 
very common. However, there was one vice president in the bank um, who was interested in trying to operationalize some of Lynn's ideas, and he had recently come to the bank from McKinsey. And so he used um, his influence to encourage the bank to to work on about five pilot studies, very modest pilot studies, in a number of countries. Jordan was one. um, I think Vietnam was another. Kazakhstan, I think, was a third. Um, I think there was to be one in India. But all this was kept very, very low-key. And um, it was so low-key that they didn't even talk about it in any sort of public forum. And they gave the name of this program, of these modest pilot projects, a name which was very deliberately designed to obscure what it was. They called it the Competitive Partnerships Initiative. That is, they chose three words that nobody could possibly object to. And so they went ahead under the radar. So this is just to illustrate um, how much the thinking of the Washington-based organizations has been in this kind of neoliberal spirit which says more market, less state. That's the end of the story. I mean, of course, I'm exaggerating, but that's the basic thrust. More market, less state. We want to get the state out. And fortunately, one... one One uh, good effect of the financial crisis is that, at least in certain limited parts of the international community, uh, even the Washington-based organizations are beginning to rethink some of this kind of knee-jerk neoliberalism that has been prevailing ever since, especially ever since the end of the Cold War. Thank you very much. We'll uh, have to conclude here. Uh, Thank you to the audience and especially to Robert and Richard for a very interesting evening. Good night.